I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, how's it going out there? Brian here, and this is episode three of Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, uh, I haven't been doing too much since I recorded episode two. I did go to the arcade with my uh, godson a couple of weeks ago, and I do have that as a, I do have that as a uh, on the road segment. So I will be recording that. I mean, I'm recording. That. I'll be putting that in a future podcast. So stay tuned. Um, I did go to Pinball Pete's with my son um, yesterday. And, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of money because it's, uh, three days before my payday. So I'm pretty much flat broke until then. So I didn't play anything. And besides keeping track of him running around in a video game arcade is (laughs) a full-time job as it were. So I let him just go from machine to machine. And he did, he pretty much pushed buttons and pushed coin return slots and coin return uh flaps (laughs) it was kind of funny to watch because it brought back so many memories of me doing the same thing back when i was trying to find a quarter or two to play some games when i didn't have money and i was hanging out in the arcade um so yeah we hung out there for a little while before we had to leave um we went downtown during a University of Michigan football game, and I did not want to be downtown after that game let out. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Michigan Stadium is where uh, University of Michigan football takes place, which is, I want to say, three quarter, half to three quarters of a mile away from where I was, and that stadium seats 105,000 people. So when the game lets out, it's really hard to get around Ann Arbor at that point. So I just abandoned ship and we got out of there. Um, I do plan on going to the arcade with my godson uh, next Sunday, which would be the 14th, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, October 14th. So there will be an on-the-road segment about that. And there will also be, as the last couple of arcade runs I did, there will be pictures. You know, high scores and things like that. I might even get a picture of my godson uh, playing, you know, games and stuff. Because that's part of the cool thing about going to the arcade with him. Is that he's 15 years old and he has autism. But he's really into going and playing the arcade games, which is just really cool to see. And, you know, it's fun just watching him figure these games out. And he's doing a pretty good job of it, actually. So, anyway, so that'll be the next arcade run I do. Um, Let's see. Just making a quick check of the mailbox. I don't think there's any emails yet. And that's unfortunate because, yeah, I would love to see some emails you know, regaling your own stories, 
you know, any critiques that you have on the show, any suggestions, anything like that, um, those are more than welcome. Just email the show at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. That's all one word. And also we have a phone number, and that is for voicemails. That is 734-743-2433. So, without any further ado, let's go into Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Okay, this one is for the first arcade that I more or less called home. Uh, That's Trouble Mall Arcade. And that one, like I said, I discovered that when I was about, that was what, 78, so I was nine years old, just wandering around the mall with permission from my mom, and I saw it, and I figured, I was figuring out right then after I saw it, um, how I was going to get up to the mall by myself, and you know how I was going to play games and things like that. And as the years went by, you know, the mall changed, I mean, the mall, the arcade changed a lot. And, you know, you had more machines coming in, you know, you had certain things coming out, you had other things coming in. It just was really cool because I was there quite a bit. I would say it, the very least, at least once every two weeks, if not once a week, even when I was nine years old. Um, anytime we had a snow day during the winter, you know, I would just, you know, put my boots on and put on like three pairs of socks because unless I could get some money for my mom or my grandparents, I couldn't take the bus up there. So I had to walk and it was quite a long walk. I mean, I remember, um, after the blizzard of 78, uh, which was shortly, yeah, that was, yeah, they'd had Space Invaders at that point. Yeah, the Blizzard of 78. Um, I remember trying to walk up there, but there was way too much snow on the ground. And I got maybe about one-third of the way up there before I was got really tired physically. My feet were starting to hurt. My legs were starting to hurt after, you know, walking through all that snow. I mean, they'd had the roads plowed. But the sidewalks were not uh, taken care of at all. So I wasn't able to get up there. So I ended up having to turn around and go back home. Um, But that was the level of, you know, what's the word? I don't, well, I can't call it addiction yet. I wasn't at that point, but I I really wanted to get there. I really wanted to go up there and hang out in the mall and go up there and, you know, play games or watch people play games and things like that. And, um, it was just one of the, it was just one of the thing I was interested in most of all. 
at nine years old. I mean, the only thing I, that had my interest more than that was Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica at that point. Because, yeah, Star Wars came out in 77. My aunt took me to see it. And my life had changed from that point forward. And then Battlestar Galactica came out in 78, which was a really cool TV series. And, yeah. So... Um, but Trumbull Bar Arcade, when I first started going there, um, it was a storefront right across the, the hall from, uh, a B. Dalton bookstore on the lower level on the north end of the mall. If I have my directions, uh, have my directions, uh, correct. It was on the north side of the mall, lower level. There was a long corridor leading out to the parking lot. I think they used that for... Well, I know they used that to get machines in and out of uh, the arcade. I know that for sure. But they had... At, I remember when I first started there, they had a pool table. They had air hockey. And they had, like, you know, some of the... All these uh, games from, you know, 70s. 76 and upward i want to say they had uh, a sprint machine they had oh god i want to say at least 10 pinball machines and you know you had various arcade machines around uh, and the, the main area of the floor that's where the pool tables and the air hockey was i remember that so um the mo most radical change that came from that place was when Space Invaders hit, which was shortly after I started going there. It's like summer 78 or thereabouts. And there, it's like almost overnight, they decided to get rid of the air hockey and pool tables because they weren't doing all that great, apparently, at the time. And Space Invaders came in, everyone was playing it. Um,. You know, all the other machines were doing well, which was really cool. I remember in 78, I think, either 78 or 79. I have to consult my show notes. Yeah, it was 79. I remember in 79, they got the Starfire machine, which was a sit-down, which was awesome because that was like a combination of Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica. I'll talk more about that in the next segment because that's part of my top tens. Um, so yeah, it was when I first discovered it in 78 and then, um, that was basically where I spent the majority of my free time from when I first discovered it in 78 all the way up when it closed in either 87 or 88. I can't remember exactly when it closed. Um, I want to say it was 88, but I know it was in that one year window. Um, like I said, the place was a fairly, it wasn't large. It had room, but it wasn't huge. It wasn't really big, but you could get a bunch of machines in there. I remember the first times I went there, um, when you walked into the place, there was this concrete, um, uh, this concrete wall that not a wall but because it had like you know it basically was cut concrete so you could actually see through the other side on it 
but that's where it was and that's where it led it basically went over to where the token uh, excuse me the quarter machine was they didn't go into tokens until later um and that's to your left and looking immediately to your right starting from the window and the corner and the wall on the right hand side going all the way to the back wall that was all pinball machines i would say they had at least a dozen in that one that one area and i don't remember exactly when they made the switch i want to say it was like 83 it was either 82 or 83 when they made the switch but they started phasing out the pinball machines until it was a 100 percent video game arcade um in 1980 um i want to say about mm, i want to say about maybe two or three months after the united states hockey team won the gold medal they came out with a, a tabletop hockey machine usa versus russia and that was in the arcade for quite some time i want to say at least until probably about 83 maybe 84 uh, when they finally finally got rid of it, um, and then the back wall was that was all machines, all the way to where the uh, little office was. I mean, you couldn't even call it an office; it was a, basically the size of a, a large closet. But that's where um, the employees, you know, like Carlo, who ran the arcade for years, and then Eric, I think, who's the guy who owned it. Um, that's where they kept. That's where they kept the money. That's where they counted the money out and everything like that. And it was like a really solid steel door, but it had. It was basically that whole door area is covered in carpet, and then now you're in the north west corner of the arcade and then there's another window with the double doors which if you walk straight out you would walk down the corridor which would lead you to the far end of, to the north entrance of the arcade or not the arcade the north entrance of the mall and out into the parking lot um and then to the to the other corner and then back towards the uh the uh concrete divider that was all arcade games against the wall and then they would have arcades on the main floor i mean arcade games on the main floor they had machines on the main floor especially once they got rid of the air hockey and uh pool table um and that's pretty much how it was you know i mean when new games came in they would sit in the more or less in the middle of the uh, of the floor, you know, right across from the office. They'd sit right on that main floor. And then there, like I said, there, they would just have arcade pinball machines and arcade machines lining the walls. And then they'd have machines like, uh, they'd have machines like on the opposite end of the opposite side of the, the, um, of the, uh, divider, and all the way to where it ends. I mean, that's where they had the Galaga machine. I mean, not Galaga, I'm sorry, Galaxian machine. When that came out in 79, that's where they put that. Um, 
And, you know, most games that you can think of from 1979, you know, to its closing day in 88, you know, they had them. I mean, the the best one they had was the Mach 3 machine, which came out in 83, I think it was. Um, that was a late laser disc game, um, which was really cool. You basically flew an F-15 Eagle. You had two choices of which game you wanted to play. You could play it like, um, a dogfighting slash ground strafing, uh, type, uh, game. And then you had one where the F-15 was a bomber. And then you would just fly over the locations and, you know, drop bombs on targets without you know with and trying to avoid getting shut you know, shut down shot down yourself um like i said they have starfire machine i remember we'll talk about that i believe in another segment of this show but uh they i remember when uh the pac-man machine showed up i'll talk more about that in that segment um i remember they when they first got missile command in 1980 when they got uh when they got a uh, Tempest in 1981, um, and it was just you know they had tons. I mean, I remember they had Defender. Um, trying, I think they had Stargate. I'm not hundred. Yeah, they did have Stargate. My memory is a little fuzzy. This is over 30 years ago now. So yeah, I mean, I re- I me- remember a lot, but I don't remember some things sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just where I was. That's home. That was home for me. If I wasn't actually in my home, that was my second home. Um, I loved the place. I mean, I was really, really sad when it closed down in, I want to say 88. It was either 87 or 88, but it was right in there. Um, basically, they shut it down because more or less a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, store the store owners in the mall they were complaining that there were a lot of kids coming up there and not spending money in their stores and even shoplifting and things like that and i knew that went down (laughs) i knew it and apparently the new management of the mall i think westfield finally came in I want to say Trumbull, no, Trumbull Mall was independently owned for a long time, but then I think Westfield came in, and I think that was one of the first things they did was shut the arcade down. Um, and let's see, there is a game room in the mall, as far as I know. The last time I was at Trumbull Mall was, what, 2005. That's the last time I was there. Um... After man, my mother passed away in 2004, I went back to, you know, for her funeral. Then the following year, I went back to get all of my stuff and bring it home. And I remember just walking the mall and just walking through like, you know, FYE and things like that. And just seeing how the mall had changed. You know, I mean, the mall had changed a lot physically over that space of almost 10 years um, they added on a lot of things. They added a legitimate food court, um, more stores, of course, more big stores. And I remember 
they shut down that area of the mall because they decided to put a, I want to, was it JCPenney? I think it was JCPenney, or it might have been another uh, store, but they put another store at the far end of the food court. I mean, they even put a McDonald's in there. I mean, I worked in that mall. Uh, I worked at an Arby's in the mall, which was still there last time I was there, which brought back a couple of memories. And then um, also I worked in a Nintendo kiosk and I had both of those jobs for a little while, but I will talk more about that uh, in story time. That is a future story time. Um, okay, the next one. I paired these two together because they just were that much of an influence. Um, Lafayette Plaza Arcade. That one... Um, my mother it used to take my brother and I to that mall all the time, buy clothes, you know, buy music and things like that. I mean, Lafayette Plaza, it was different than Trumbull Mall was, you know, but that's, I think, more because of its location. Lafayette Plaza was right smack dab in the middle of downtown Bridgeport. And, um, you know, it had more or less the same stores, you know, a little bit different here and there, you know. Um, I used to be in that mall all the time and I used to, uh, Lafayette Plaza Arcade was just, um, that was a place that came from a store space that was right next to Sears, which was the major store in, the, in that mall. And I mean, I remember just one day, just on a lark, not even thinking, just going to that mall and just, you know, as I always did, I walked the mall and sure enough, they had a, they had that storefront with, uh, a lot of game machines in it. I mean, they didn't even use the whole store space. They only used like maybe a quarter of it, but they had, I want to say at the very least they had oh, I'd say probably like 30, 40, between 30 and 50 machines for sure. And it was really cool because that's the first, the second time that I was able to play games like Vanguard and things like that. I mean, this is just when uh, Centipede came out. Centipede was ruling the roost at, at that time, you know, and they it was really cool to watch. It was really cool just to sit there and just play you know, see those games and play them. Um, let's see. You know, so it was one. It was really cool, but that arcade did not last long. And quite honestly, I am not exactly surprised that it didn't. Um, it was fun because they had different games. I mean, that's the first time I actually got to play Tax Scan, or it's maybe the second time. I think Trumbull Mall had Tax Scan for a little. If it wasn't ta if it wasn't Trumbull Mall, it was one of the stores in the mall. I know Tax Scan was in that mall. But um I learned how to play that, you know, like I said, played Vanguard, which, you know, I I was always halfway decent at that game. Um and, you know, like I said, they had I think they had like two centipedes and a couple other different uh, games. And it was just, you know, it was a lot of fun, but it, like I said, it was short-lived. I mean, it was, I think it was open maybe six months before all of a sudden I went down there to go play, the, you know, go play some games. I had a few dollars in my pocket 
and I went there and not only was the storefront closed, but yeah, I looked in there and all the machines were gone and I was kind of disappointed. I mean, I'm more than made up for it because there were, there were places like the news corner and things like that to go to if you wanted to play games and you could go to the bus station. Bus station always had a you know a couple games in there. The train station had a couple games in there. So it's not like the there weren't options in downtown Bridgeport. So, you know, those memories. I only went to that arcade maybe like two or three times, but it's it stuck in my head enough to where, you know, that memory is you know kind of just goes hand in hand with. Trumbull Mall Arcade because I think there was one time where I decided that I was going to go downtown and get my comic books from the news the news corner and I went and did that I you know I had money at this point I wanted I had no, I had an allowance my I somehow negotiated that with my mother and um, so yeah I used to go downtown you know, buy some comic books, go over to the, you know, over to Lafayette Plaza. Um, oh yeah, another play store that had games in there was uh, Carl Graff's Record Store. They always had video games in there, which was really cool. You know, I love that place anyway. It was one of my favorite record stores of all time, both the Trumbull Mall store and the downtown Lafayette Plaza store. But um, then I go into the Lafayette Plaza Maybe go over to Orange Julius, get a little something to eat, a little something to drink, and then go over to the arcade, play games for a little while, and then um, take the Main Street bus and go home. Or if I had enough money left over, I would just go straight up to the go straight up to Trumbull Mall from there because uh, the Main Street uh, bus would go from Seaside Park, which was the southern terminus of Main Street, and go all the way up to Trumbull Mall. And, of course, you know, I'd drive by my, it would drive right by my neighborhood and things like that. So if I wanted to go home, it was like a f- five-minute walk to get home from the bus stop from there. And, you know, there were a couple times where, you know, I made a day of it where I'd blow my entire allowance, but... You know, I buy comic books. Comic books were still cheap back then. I think they were like 35 or 50 cents. And then, you know, go up to the mall, hang out there for the rest of the day, go and play games in the arcade, and made sure I had enough money to take the last bus from the mall, which was uh, Saturday, I think, was like, the last bus, I think, was like 6 o'clock at night. And just take the last bus home and go home. And the funny part was, is that um, actually the main street line only went until six, but the Chopsy Hill road uh, route, which was uh, number 12 would run probably until like eight or nine o'clock on a Saturday. And you know, that one would go down on the back end of uh, of my home street. And oh, the problem is, is that I would have to walk uphill like three quarters of a mile to get home. 
you know, or something like that. It, was, it seemed that long. It probably wasn't. Valley Avenue's not that big, but yeah. So, you know, I had options if I screwed around and I hung out way too late. And if I hung out way too late for both buses, I, I, I walked home. And that's, that's kind of what I did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, that arcade was, it was really cool. I wish it had, it had stuck, but I kind of understand why it didn't, you know, you know, Lafayette Plaza was a great, it was a great mall, but the problem was, is, you know, it was in the middle of downtown Bridgeport and there was a lot of crime going on in downtown Bridgeport, you know, going from the early, you know, go from the early 80s where it really started to ramp up with the proliferation of you know certain drugs you know like crack and things like that you know and you just didn't screw around in downtown Bridgeport after a certain time you know you got your ass home as soon as you as soon as possible and you didn't mess around because you could get mugged or worse down there so yeah um, those were my memories of those two malls. Uh, if you have any thoughts, if you grew up in that time, in that area, and you have thoughts about these places, just drop me a line at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, from there, we will go to top tens. Top tens. Top 10 video games of 1979. Now, 79 was yet when I really started going to the mall on a regular basis. At this point, I'm 10 years old. And, you know, I'm going there and, you know, I'm going there with money. I'm going there without money. You know, that was where I decided to go. If I wasn't hanging out at home, which was kind of rare, um... If I wasn't at home or hanging out with my friends in my neighborhood, that's where I was in the mall. And I just remember back in the back in '79, right after Space Invaders came out, you saw a ton of Space Invaders type games. I mean, some were direct clones of Space Invaders, others were different takes on that type of game, and also when Asteroids came out in '79, you saw a lot more uh, vector games. I mean, there were vector games going, you know, back into the, you know, when I, uh, you know, going back into the earlier days, there were several vector games, but I think 79 was when they seriously started coming out. And I have a top 10 here, you know, um, listed here again in more or less, uh, alphabetical order but not in order of preference because yeah i just don't want to expend the brain power to do a top 10 um so yeah let's just start with asteroids i talked about asteroids in episode two and you know this one yeah it was almost as important as it's almost as important as uh space invaders in its way because it was new it was different you know there were some games, older games, um, games like uh, Space War, which were free flight games. You could fly in any direction, but there weren't that many. But Asteroids kind of changed that. 
you know, because it was not only just a great game to play, but it got progressively harder. And you had to know what you were doing to get a really decent score. A decent score on Asteroids is anything over 50,000 in my book. Um, and, you know, like I said, I used to hang out and watch guys play it and get tips from them. Um, <laughs> I remember the first few times I tried to play Asteroids and I would just sit there in the middle and not move my ship around. I would just turn my ship and just fire at the Asteroids and... You know, I didn't know how to do any sort of evasion moves yet. I didn't learn these things until I was watching that guy, Charlie, that I talked about last episode. I mean, he came in and he used to rock that game. He would put up... I mean, I remember there was one time where he had the top score almost all the time. At least 60,000. Sometimes 70, sometimes 80. But you know, most of his scores were in the range of sixty to sixty to eighty thousand, and he had the top score almost all the time. And the top, I just remember the top ten high score list was really hard to crack uh, because you know you had so many guys playing that game, and a lot of them were really good. And I think the lowest score on such a game was at the very least twenty five thousand. And I remember a couple of times after I learned how to play it, uh, and, you know, I actually was pretty decent at it, I remember um, any time I cracked that top 10, you know, on the machine, I, it was a sense of accomplishment. It really was. Because, I mean, th th this competition was rather stiff. So, yeah, I mean, um, asteroids, I mean... <laughs> You know, like I said, one of the most iconic arcade games of all time, at least in my view. Uh, Astro Fighter. This one was really interesting because it um, more or less was a Space Invaders type game where your ship was on the bottom of the screen and you could only move left and right while you fired at your enemies. But this one, the enemies came down, it moved in these strange patterns i mean i'm trying to remember the first time i actually played a game of astro fighter or the first time i saw it i think it was a <laughs> it was a bar on north avenue um about i want to say about half a mile west of main street i think that's where it was and it was one of those things where i'm just wandering around the neighborhood you know, just walking around, just, you know, I think, I think I had just gone to see my aunt or something like that, because she lived on that side of town, and I was walking back, and I remember just happening by this bar, and I saw a video game machine in there, and the door was wide open, so I went in there, you know, I didn't, like, go up to the bar or anything like that, I wasn't stupid, I knew I couldn't order anything, they kicked me out in five seconds, so I remember seeing this game called Astro Fighter and I think, yeah, I think I played it once and I just remember just being confused by it because not only did these enemies move in these patterns, you know, these, you know, these maneuvering patterns, but the more enemies you killed, the faster they went, a la Space Invaders. And I didn't last very long. I 
think I got past the first stage. I don't think I got past the second. And it was just one of those games where anytime I saw it and I had a quarter and I had a little time, I'd play it, you know, and it was just one of those games that just stuck in my head, even though it was, you know, I didn't see it very often. The arcade in Brighton has it and it's really cool to play it because not only are you playing the game or at least in my case, I'm playing the game and I'm sort of reminiscing about stuff as I'm playing it. Um, so yeah, Astro Fighter, Galaxian. This one was, I want to say, yeah, it was kind of revolutionary because it was one of the first games that was legitimately full color. And not only that, it had a different challenge than Space Invaders. That you, of course, your ship occupied the, the bottom of the screen and you had a fleet of, uh enemy fighters who would dive bomb you and as they as you got as the game got better I mean as you got better at the game you know they would be more aggressive they would move faster and the game just got more and more challenging and I remember when that game came in and everybody was playing that for a long time oh let's see uh, Lunar Lander which was a game that Atari made, and they basically took the hardware on that game, and that's what they made Asteroids off of, if I'm not mistaken. And Lunar Lander was a game that was really, really interesting, because it wasn't, you didn't shoot anybody, you know, you didn't have any enemies to deal with. Basically what you did was you had to land your lander on the moon. And depending on the difficulty of the area you decide to land on, like um, your lander would be, would start at like the top left of the screen and would start to drift downward as the gravity of the moon would start to pull you in. And if you just let it pull you in, you would start moving faster and faster and faster as the gravity took hold. And you had two directional buttons to turn the lander and then you had this huge lever. I mean, just that's what drew me to this game more than anything else. I'm like, what? How does this game work? <laughs> and this lever basically controlled the engine thrust of your lander. And it went from if the lever was all the way down, it, you know, the thrusters were off and just gravity would just take you. And as you push the lever up, the, the thrust on your lander would get stronger. And of course, you have only a limited amount of fuel, you know, on your lander to make these landings. And the more thrust you used, the more fuel you would use. And it was, I loved the game. It was, it was really cool. It was, it was a change, it was a good change of pace from all the shoot 'em ups that were, you know, uh, that were prevalent during the day. Um, in each landing area you would, you know, that were on there, they had a multiplier attached to it. The higher the multiplier, the more difficult it was, or the smaller the landing area was, and the more difficult it was because it was, it was, uh, closer to like mountainous areas and you had much, much less room for error. And 
I just remember a couple of times just dropping like a dollar in there because with each quarter that you dropped in, you get a certain amount of fuel. And I remember um, I used to learn, I basically learned how to play that game through watching several people and also my own uh, experiences with it, you know, and there were things, you know, there were areas here and there, but there weren't any real, not areas, there were um, magazines here and there, but there weren't any real strategy guides or strategy books for at least another couple of years. So yeah, Lunar Lander, that was another great one. Um, Lunar Rescue. This one was really cool because it, you basically dropped out of a space, a mothership, and you basically had to avoid um, enemy, you know, enemy mines as you went down, and you landed on these platforms, and you would, you know, one, and you had these humans you had to rescue, and when you landed on a platform, one human would run down from his spot and get in your ship, and then your ship would take off, and then the mines would turn into these enemy saucers and they would shoot at you and you had to not only shoot them to, you know, shoot them to get points. You also had to clear your way back to the mothership. And it was a really, really cool game. I loved it. it it's fun to play. I still play it to this day. You know, um, it, you know, it's just one of those games where it's not that as well known as like Galaxian or asteroids, but even then it's a really, I really love that game. Um, Monaco GP, this game, I tell you, this game had everybody's attention when it came out in 79. I remember when the arcade got it and it's this, basically it's this vertical racing game and basically you're driving a formula one car. The steering wheel is controls your, your, uh, controls your car left and right, of course, and you had a gas pedal and also a low gear and high gear. And, you know, the trick was to get as many, you know, I believe is to pass as many cars as you could. And, you know, it was really interesting because you had, um, you had normal world conditions, you had ice, you had night driving conditions, which was only like the small space ahead of your car. Um, you had, you know, your car had headlights, which is kind of funny, but you could only see them and you only could see like the taillights of the cars as they came down from the top of the screen and you had to kind of track them and move your car away from them to pass them. And it had a digital score counter and it also had a digital high score bank, you know, right below it. So you know, if you put up a high score on that machine, it would just transfer right down to the little high score LED bank. It was all LED scoring, which I thought was like really, really cool. You know, I mean, this game was just awesome. I love playing it. I mean, the, the only thing I really miss about this game is that it's just not in uh, emulation as far as I know. I've tried to track it down. And every version that I've tried to track down an emulation, it just doesn't work for one reason or another, and I don't know what it is. Okay, Space Invaders Part 2. Of course, this is the first sequel to Space Invaders uh, that came out in the States. First time I ever saw this game was 
at a bar on the, at the end of Main Street, right at uh, right at uh, Seaside Park. I forget what the name of the bar is, but every I went down there maybe like three or four times. But I remember I used to go down there because they had a Star Trek pinball machine, which I thought was one of the coolest pinball machines in existence. And they had Space Invaders Part 2. And I used to play Space Invaders Part 2 and, you know, just, you know, do that until uh, the until I could catch the bus to go home. And Space Invaders Part 2 is pretty much like the original Space Invaders with some minor differences. Um, you have the regular saucer, which I think still had the the shot counter trick. And then you had the other Space Invader, the, the other saucer, which blinked on and off out of existence. It was only worth 200 points, but, you know, you had to time your shot in order to kill it. Um, the other thing was, is that uh, some of the uh, invaders, when you hit them with your shot, they would split into two smaller aliens, which as they moved, they got smaller and bigger and they were chal more challenging to hit. Um, and then it also had like this little, uh, interlude in between some of the levels, you know, where it was like a, a, uh, an alien mothership, like trying to fly out of, you know, fly away from earth. And sometimes it would make it to the top. Sometimes it would have engine trouble and it would stop. And then an alien would separate from the top of it and continue out, which I thought was really good. And not only that, the... Um, when the, when the, when the level started, it wasn't like they, you know, the screen would just fill with aliens. They would come from the top of the screen and come down to where, whatever level they were going to come down to before they started moving left to right. And it was, it's just had these little additional touches, which I thought were really cool. Head on this one. I'm trying to remember the first time I ever played it. I think it was at Trumbull Mall, believe it or not. It was I think it was one of those machines that came around uh you know, came around in 79, but it was you know, it was one of those where it was one of the first true kind of maze games and not only that, it became a rather popular game on the Atari 2600. Um yeah, at this point I would say um, at this point, I would say it was one of the original, like, what, 10, 10 or 12 games that came out with the system in 78. But yeah, so basically you control a car and then, you know, you got dots in the maze and basically you have to clear all the dots in the maze while trying to avoid the computer control car, which is trying to kill you. And I mean, I remember just in that game, it was fun because just trying to come up with systems that would work. You know, the you know, of course, the system that would you would get through the first screen wouldn't quite work quite so well in the second screen. And then the third screen, you had two cards to deal with. And then, of course, that requires constant movement. And then I want to say the fifth screen is three cars, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to play it to be sure, but um, they were a lot of fun. I mean... I remember the Atari version of this game, which is called Dodge'em. 
you know, I remember that more, more clearly because, you know, once you got an Atari 2600 or you knew someone who played it and had this game, you, you would just play this game nonstop. It was fun. It was that much fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, head on, um, the mall and the, excuse me, the arcade in Brighton has this game and I actually played it for like the first time in years like at least 10 years if not longer i'd probably say even 20 it was at least that long so um yeah head on and let's see i think and the last one is starfire which i talked about in the last segment for a minute you're basically sitting in an x-wing fighter and you're trying to kill tie fighters this i don't know how they got away with doing this game without Lucasfilm coming after them because this was so much a uh like a Star Wars type game it wasn't even funny the only thing and whatever uh money Lucasfilm would have taken from suing them um Universal would have gotten the rest of it because there was a ship in there the mothership which was like a colonial fighter in Battlestar Galactica so it took from both those games um, you basically had to shoot down enemy fighters and avoid getting killed yourself. They would shoot these huge fireballs at you and you would have to either evade them or use um, forward and reverse to, to evade them. Um, you basically, it was one control yoke which moved in and out, which moved the ship up and down, turning it left and right, turned it left to the right, and then you had forward and reverse. And, of course, you had the fire button for your lasers. And you couldn't go around just firing willy-nilly because the lasers would overheat for, like, oh, I want to say, like, eight seconds, maybe even as long as ten. It seemed like an eternity to me. But, you know, it, to me, it was just fun just playing that game. I mean, I remember there were times where I basically would drop, like, two dollars and quarters in there because... Um, while all this is going on, you have a limited number of energy, a limited amount of energy, and that's going down as you're continuing to play. You know, that was basically your timer, you know, for the game to see how far you could get. And I remember dropping like $2 in, in, in quarters in that thing and just playing that game for like 30 minutes and putting up like this ridiculous score of like, I want to say 30,000 or something like that. Um, the thing about the game was, is that, uh, the different colored ships re represented, uh, different scores. Um, let's see. I think it was blue, green, and orange. I think that's what the color scheme was without actually after going into well, actually going into my emulator and looking at it. Uh, blue was 10 points for each TIE Fighter. Um, green was 20, I think. And I think orange was 30. I think that's what it was. And the thing is that you advance by finding the mothership, which would fly left to right across your screen. And if you killed it, then you would go on to the next the next uh, set of fighters. And if you got hit by the uh, enemy fire, it would drop you back down to the beginning. 
So the trick was getting all the way up to the oranges and just staying there and just shooting down fighters as many as possible and shooting down the motherships where you could which for extra points. And then you would just keep going that way and just play and just keep playing and playing and playing until your energy ran out. Um, aside from that, I mean, it was a fun game. I mean, like I said, the Trumbull Mall had a sit-down version of it, which was, I thought, was one of the coolest things in the world. Okay. Um, honorable mentions. Okay. Fire One. This is a game that I don't think I played only a few times, but it was made by the same company that made uh, Starfire, which was really, really cool. And, you know, I'm playing it as we speak. You're in a full, you're in a submarine and you're basically trying to torpedo enemy ships without getting killed yourself, which was, which is really cool. You know, you've got enemy submarines, you've got enemy carriers, things like that. And some of them take multiple hits. Like the carrier that I'm shooting at right now takes seven hits to kill. You know, there's enemy submarine that you're trying to... You know, enemy submarine trying to kill that I just got. And you're basically shooting like i said enemy ships and it's really cool i think i don't think i played this machine that many times you know which i thought was really cool you know and it's fun to play it's actually a really cool game to play there's some strategy involved you have to wait until your torpedoes are reloaded and it's kind of cool just to watch. But yeah, it's basically a takeoff on the other machine, other game, other games of the, you know, of this time. Yeah. But yeah, I just decided to play it while I was talking about it because I didn't, I don't remember playing it much, but I do remember the, the couple times I did play it that. It's just one of those things that just kind of sticks with you. And let's see. On to the next one. Tail Gunner. And this is a, one of those uh, raster games. Or not raster. Vector games. That I was talking about that sort of just took over. You know, because I just... It just seemed to me like every other game that came out in 79 was a, uh, was a vector game. But yeah, I mean... It's... Tail Gunner is an interesting game. I've never got to work in emulation, unfortunately. But it's one of those games which looks like it would be fun. It looks like you're basically behind, you know, you're basically flying a spaceship. You know, not flying a spaceship. You're a tail gunner in a spaceship. And you're basically trying to... You're basically trying to, you know, kill your kill the enemy ships flying at you. And yeah, the one thing I'm finding out is that the game, the game itself, the, the controls you'd have to mess with. But yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, I like it. It's not, it's not, not a bad game, but 
it's one of those where it's very, very, very sensitive, and you'd have to, in emulation, you'd have to tweak it. You probably could use a trackball with it, but I think it was a trackball game, but I can't remember exactly. But yeah, it was one of those cool little, uh, cool little, um, vector games. Let's see. And last, well, second to last, is Warrior. I remember when this came out, everyone was all about this. Um, basically, it's a sword fighting game. You're basically uh, in like this super imposed, graphically superimposed uh, area where there's like pits. And basically, it's a top down where you're basically, I think it's two, uh, two control sticks, if I'm not mistaken. And you're basically moving your fighter around and swinging his sword. And you're trying to basically either kill or force your enemy into the pit, which gives you points. Or a point, I should say. And I remember when this came out, everyone was playing this. You know, it it took me a while to kind of figure it out, but I did. And it wasn't too bad. Though it didn't stay around too long, if I'm not, if I remember correctly. Then, of course, at last, bringing up the last is uh, Starhawk. This one I liked because it was just like, it was one of those video games which was a combination of, it was a combination of like, uh, Star Wars and, uh, Buck Rogers and stuff like that. I thought it was really cool. You know, basically you control a, a targeting site and there are spaceships flying, uh, around this Death Star kind of thing. And, you know, you're basically just trying to kill kill these kill these different enemies i'm playing it as we speak and you know different ones take different different uh enemies uh different enemies have different uh values and i just remember you had tie fighters you had the tie advanced fighter yeah, and you basically had all these different uh, ships that had, yeah, the, all these different ships that had different values. You're trying to rack up the score, and then of course, as you're racking up scores, your uh, that Buck Rogers Starfire would just come out of the, just come out of the place, and basically just you know, shoot your score, take some of it, and fly away. Unless you shot it, then you get your score back. And, you know, I remember just playing this because it was it was kind of mindless. I don't remember it being quite as hard as it is now, but yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a fun game to play. And it's I like playing these games in emulation because it just takes me right back. It takes me right back to being at the mall and, you know, all the things that were going on then. You know, it was just a lot of fun. So, yeah, that uh, those are my top tens. Um, if you got your own top tens, any comments or anything like that, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian.com. I'll read your email on the show and I'll respond to what you put out there and we'll just go from there okay guys 
Let's move on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arsed in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. Say like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? <laughs> Pac-Man. Okay. <laughs> now, my memories of this game, they start in Trumbull Mall. Of course, where a lot of the memories of video games start. I remember just showing up at the arcade one day, trying to remember, I think I hadn't been there in like a couple of weeks or so. And I just remember these, just this throng of people just, just gathered around these two machines. And I remember walking up to them and seeing them and they were just these raggedy, raggedy bootleg machines. And and then I look at the screen and it's this, this maze game where basically you're going around and eating pellets and being chased by these ghosts. And you got these, uh, big pellets in the corners and you run over, you eat those, then you can chase the ghosts and get points out of them. I thought it was a really interesting game and it was, you know, they, it was called gobbler. <laughs> which is kind of funny because as it turns out, those were Pac-Man bootlegs, which were probably a lot less expensive than the actual Bally Midway uh, machines at the time. So I remember just, as I've talked about before, um, back in the day when you wanted to play a game and somebody else was playing, you basically took your quarter and put it either on the uh on the bezel um on the top of the machine or you put it on the screen where it meets the uh where it meets the control panel and hope that your quarter didn't sink right into the machine because bye bye 25 cents so i remember just this machine had quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter on it I'm talking about, oh my God, I'd probably say there was at least $4 on that machine from left to right, you know, just all over the place. I knew I wasn't going to play that game right away. So I just was content to just, you know, stand there and watch. And it was really cool just watching people play it. And it was colorful and it had music, you know, it was really interesting. It was a really interesting game. I didn't actually see a legitimate pac-man machine until i want to say a couple of months later i just remember i think i skipped school that day and uh i went to the mall arcade and i was like i think somebody had told me there was an actual legitimate pac-man machine at a chuck e cheese and i just remember i just wanted to go see it so there was a a a, a um, a bus that went from Trumbull Mall out to Fairfield, where which is where it was, and 
I remember just getting on that bus and going over there and just going over to the Chuck E. Cheese. This is back when Chuck E. Cheese had nothing but arcade games in them before they decided to go with ticket games and all that other crap and nonsense. And I just remember going in there and just seeing it. It was a, it was a cabaret. It wasn't a full-size machine. It was a cabaret. And it, but it was really it was really cool. It was yellow and it had all this all these cool graphics on this on the um on the uh glass and I thought it was really cool just to see. And you know, you know, unfortunately I think I may ha- I think I had like 50 cents. I think I played it once, maybe twice. Of course, I wasn't really good at it then. So, I mean, I remember playing it and just seeing it and just seeing if there was any real difference between it and the two gobbler machines at uh Trumbull Mall Arcade. And it really wasn't. Now just to pull up a little bit of information about the game. Pac-Man is an arcade game developed by Namco and first released in Japan as Puckman in May of 1980. It was created by Japanese video game designer Toru Iwatani. Uh, it was licensed for distribution in the United States by Midway Games and released in October of 1980. Yeah, that sounds about right, because I think it was, it was, I think, right around then. Probably uh, November of 80 when I saw it. Um, immensely popular from its original release to the present day, Pac-Man is considered one of the classics of the medium and an icon of 1980s popular culture. And being a child of the 80s, I agree with that. Upon its release, the game and subsequently Pac-Man derivatives became a social phenomenon that yielded high sales of merchandise and expired a legacy in other media such as the Pac-Man animated television series and the top 10 Buckler, Buckner and Garcia hit Pac-Man Fever. Yep. Uh, the game was popular in the 1980s and 1990s and is still played in the 2010s, which is true. Uh, when Pac-Man was released, the most popular arcade g- video games were space shooters, in particular Space Invaders and Asteroids, which is also true. Uh, the most visible minor- minority were sports games that were mostly derivative- derivatives of Pong, and that's true too. Uh, Pac-Man succeeded by creating a new genre. Pac-Man is of- often credited with being a landmark in video game history and is among the most famous arcade games of all time, which is true. It is also one of the highest grossing video games of all time, having generated more than 2.5 billion in quarters by the 1990s, which is so true. And I'm going to click on the link of the highest grossing video games of all time because I'm curious. And yes, and yes. Pac-Man is number one. They sold 400,000 arcade units up to 1982. Um, the gross revenue without inflation was $3.5 billion, and that goes up to 1999. If you put it in with, in, with 2017 inflation, that's the equivalent of $10.4 billion. And, yeah, that is number one and number one by quite a bit, actually. Space Invaders is number two. Street Fighter 2 is number three. Uh, Donkey Kong is number four. Ms. Pac-Man is number five, which is more than respectable. Uh, Asteroids, number six. Defender, seven. Galaxian, eight. Donkey Kong Jr., number nine. And Mr. Do, number ten. <laughs> and how funny is it? All these games are are 
more or less in one way or another favorites of mine. Okay. So, um, let's see. The characters appeared in more than 30 officially licensed game spinoffs, as well as in numerous unauthorized clones and bootlegs. According to the Davy Brown Index, Pac-Man has the highest brand awareness of any video game character among American consumers, recognized by 94% of them. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Uh, Pac-Man is one of the longest-running video game franchises from the golden age of video arcade games. It is one part of the collection of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. and New York's Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, I mean, I am not surprised by any of that. I'm looking at the picture of uh, Pac-Man, the Pac-Man machines in the Wikipedia. They have a, a normal stand-up. They have a cabaret and they have a cocktail and you know, uh, the first Pac-Man machine, legit Pac-Man machine I ever saw was a cocktail, not cocktail, excuse me, cabaret, which is brown on the sides and the front. The control uh, panel is white with uh, art and graphics and the, the uh, bezel is also white. The Pac-Man machine of course is yellow with the familiar, uh, graphics of Pac-Man being chased by a ghost or a ghost or Pac-Man chasing a ghost. Uh, the bezel is white and the, uh, controls, the control panel is black. And, you know, it's just, I just remember, yeah, this game, everybody played this for the longest time. I mean, there was just an addiction to this game. It was just like Space Invaders. It's like I've said. Space Invaders was the first one that really changed the game and changed the genre. Um, and then again in 1980, Pac-Man did it. Um, Asteroids had a, a really strong impact, but it was nowhere near these two. Or Donkey Kong when it came out in 81. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember playing it. The most high score I ever got on Pac-Man, I think, is like 140,000. Somewhere around there. I have a copy of Score, How to Beat the Top 10 Video Games. And in there you had... Oh no, there was another one. There was another video game. It was a. It was actually a video game logbook, now that I remember it. It was a logbook that you would keep your scores in. And actually there was another little log thing in back of Score. And I'll have to pull it out of my closet... You know, it's in storage in my bedroom closet right now. I'll have to pull it out just to be able to go back and, you know, look at some of the scores. Because when these, book, these books came out in the uh, early 80s, I want to say like by 1982 or so, I was obsessed with keeping track of my highest scores at these games. I mean, I was nowhere near as good as some of the guys I hung out with, but I was no slouch either. I was probably one of the better video game players in my neighborhood that I can say that if I wasn't the best, you know, I'd say I was at least top three, but yeah. So, and I just remember there just a lot, there's always people playing it from the time they got those, uh, machines in sometime like late fall, early winter of 80, um, all the way until they got rid of them. I don't think they had them for very long. I think they kept them for like maybe a year I think it was like towards the 
towards the either the beginning or towards the middle of 81 or towards the end of 81 where i think they got rid of those machines for some reason probably because they were using bootlegs and somebody ratted them out something um but yeah i mean i remember the the animated series which was just goofy as all hell um the single pac-man fever which was really cool you know i still i actually i have it it's in my music collection <laughs> Uh, I think I bought it off of Amazon, you know, a couple years ago, just for the sake of having it. Um, you know, every once in a while, I mean, I'm not as into Pac-Man anymore. I'm much more into Ms. Pac-Man, you know, and I'll probably explain why once we get to Ms. Pac-Man when it came to Are You Experienced? Um, uh, the thing that you had to do with Pac-Man more than anything else, you had to develop patterns. You had to have at least three or four different patterns to really be good at the game. Because the first, the patterns in the first couple of games, or first couple of levels, only work for those. And you had to come up with something different for the next couple. And while all this is going on, um, your Pac-Man is moving faster through the maze. You know, the ghosts are getting... A little more aggressive um the red ghost blinky he starts he starts off at normal speed with the rest of the ghosts but as you gobble more and more dots he starts going faster and starts getting more aggressive he by far is the most aggressive out of all of the ghosts um let's see let's see it's blinky inky pinky and clyde if i remember correctly um uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember the differences. I think what how it went was Blinky would always take the most direct route to get to you. Um, I think Pinky was a little less aggressive, but he would try to trap you. So if Blinky was chasing you and he wasn't like in line with, you know, if, if Blinky was chasing you and Pinky wasn't in line with him, he tried to try to set you up. Um, Inky, which, which was the blue ghost, he also would try to trap you, but he would actually do it in a way, he would try to, he would basically try to cut off avenues of escape, if I remember right, and Clyde was just random. You know, there would be times where he would chase you like any of the other ghosts, then of course he would just, just peel off and go a different way. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I found that you could get killed. The, the, the ones you would get killed most by in order were Blinky, Pinky, Clyde, then Inky. Because Clyde, there were some times where he would just ignore you and just keep going along his merry way, whichever way that was. And there were times where he would just, just turn where you didn't think he was going to turn and you'd run into him and that would be the end of it. Um, scoring, each dot is 10 points, the power pellets are 50, each ghost that you gobble after gobbling a power pellet are 200, 400, 800, and 1600 points respectively. Um, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, people, I'm not even looking at any information. Um, the fruits that would appear below the little... Uh, area where the ghosts come from or regenerate from um the cherry is 100 strawberries 300 
the peach or the orange, depending on who you talk to. And there was a big debate about that back in the day. <laughs> that was 500. The apple was 700. The grapes were 1,000. The Galaxian boss was 2,000. And then the key was 5,000. Uh, the time where I got 140,000, I think I made it to like the third key. You know, that was at Valley Steakhouse in Stratford. Uh, just one of those nights where my mother and my future stepfather would take my brother and I and themselves, would take us all out to dinner and a movie. And I think we had just stopped to go get dinner at Valley's, which was a popular uh, dinner destination for my family. And I remember just getting a quarter from my mom and just going and playing Pac-Man. And that was like, by this time I had had my own patterns or someone had shown me patterns that actually work. And I did really well, you know, you know, anything over a hundred thousand is really good in Pac-Man, you know, no matter what, um, that one spawned like game, you know, let's see, let me see if I remember the sequence, right? It was Pac-Man in 80, Ms. Pac-Man. Then there was, oh, Pac-Man plus, which was a, which was a game created by another studio. Then let's see. Then there was Junior Pac-Man, which was another one. I think no, I think no. Baby Pac-Man was before Junior. So Baby Pac-Man was a hybrid pinball slash video game, which was actually really cool. It was kind of cool because um, last year um, Jack Danger, who is a pinball streamer on Twitch. He actually played that game in, I forget where it was. I want to say it was level 257 in Chicago, which is a Pac-Man themed uh, arcade slash bar slash bowling alley in Chicago. And he blew that game up. You know, it was funny because he basically just takes a machine that he's, you know, sometimes he knows nothing about. And through his own trial and error or through the... Um, through the uh, advice of the uh, people watching his stream, he ends up conquering that game. And I remember watching him play that and watching him absolutely destroy it. And I was jealous and I was triggered because I remember baby Pac-Man took a lot of my money <laughs> in 1983, I think. I think it came out, is it 82 or 83? And that game took a lot of my money because... You know, the pinball machine was kind of cheesy and you had to be actually really good at both the pinball machine and the actual game to uh, succeed in Baby Pac-Man. You know, you had to be good in the pinball machine to get the power pellets, to get the score, you know, get really good scores. And then you had to get, you had to be good at drawing all... You know, he had to be really good at Pac-Man. And it was funny because Jack was really good at, at uh, pinball, but he was horrible at Pac-Man. And only through like playing like 15, 20 games did he actually kind of figure it out. And that was a really fun thing to watch. But yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, then it went Pac-Mania, I want to say. I think that was like 85 or something like that. I'd have to look at it. But I'm just doing this off the top of my head. And then it just kept going from there. So, yeah, I mean, this was one of the games that was a, a fundamental shift in video gaming. 
Space Invaders. Pong, of course, was first way back in 72. And then then there just was a dearth of really uh, something really good to come along until Space Invaders in 78. Then Pac-Man and the Asteroids in 79, Pac-Man in 80, Donkey Kong in 81, and it just kept going from there. You know, that's like I, like was discussed in the previous episode. Uh, the golden age of video gaming was from 78 to 83. Even possibly 84, but I think 83 is the cutoff. So anyway, all right, that's Pac-Man. Uh, if you have any uh, any uh, suggestions, uh, stories, anything you've got that you want to share with the slowly growing, audi- growing audience, just drop me an email at arcadeaddictbrian.com. Okay, with that one done, we shall move on to Arcade Review. Arcade review. Okay. Uh, this one, as I've said in episode zero, this is going to be infrequent. Um, I'm going to review arcades that I uh, visit. I'm not going to review all the ones I've been to in the past because I can view some of them through rose-colored glasses. I can be objective. It's just difficult. Um, okay. Just to break it down. Um, each review that I have about the arcade is based on five criteria, location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Uh, location is self-explanatory. Um, is it easy to get to? Um, is there ample parking? Is it easy to find when you're looking for it? Things like that. That's easy, easy enough. Selection. Um, how many games do they have? What's their selection like? Um, is it classic games? Is it newer games? Is it a mix of the two? And things like that. Ambiance. Um, that comes down to how the arcade looks, you know, and also sounds and more or less the atmosphere of it. Um, I mean, I'm a sucker for uh, video game art and 80s music blasting as you're playing all these games that you played in your childhood and things like that. That's what I'm kind of on the lookout for. Is the staff friendly? You know, are they helpful? Are they indifferent? Things like that. Um, functionality. Do the games work? Uh, if they do work, what kind of condition are the games in, you know, and things like that. And of course, value, you know, is it a decent value? Is it a sucky value? Is it a good value? You know, just, you know, that's more or less the criteria. 
Uh, each of these criteria will be rated from 1 to 10, 1 being the worst, 10 being the best, and of course there are also half points coming into play. So all the scores will be added together, and they will average them out for a final rating score. So this in this uh, review, I'm going to review Pinball Pete's. A uh, little bit of a backstory. Um, I moved up here to Michigan in 2002. And once I kind of got myself settled and also uh, I was able to get myself a car, my roommates sold me their old car, which is a beat to hell 1991 Ford Escort with like, oh God, I want to say like almost 200,000 miles on it, but it still ran and still got you around. Um, yeah, I mean, so after that, it was, after a while, it was sort of like, you know what, I want to sort of get my lay of the land. I want to see if there are any arcades around. So after, after doing a search on the internet and being a little disappointed with some of the results I was getting because there wasn't a lot in the area. There really wasn't. There's actually only one pinball Pete's and one day you know I had a day off from work and I had a little bit of money in my pocket I said let's go find out what you know see what this is about and so I ended up going downtown finding a finding a place to park I went into this you know went in there and they also had well in the same storefront they had there was also uh a, um, a friendly local role-playing game store in there, which was one of the best ones I've ever been to. And I still feel sad that they had to shut down in like, oh God, I want to say what year. I think that was like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. I think they finally shut down, which was too bad. But yeah, so I went into Pinball Pete's and, you know, went down, you know, it's like I said in... I think I have a an arcade run coming up in uh, on the road segment where I talked about pin, going to Pinball Pete's one day. I think it was over this summer, as a matter of fact. And so I went in there and I played some games. I went in there and played games. I thought it was really cool. I mean, you know, it was really good. You know, it's a decent place. Could it be better? Obviously. In my opinion, it could be a whole lot better. But it's not bad and it had a good enough balance between new games ticket games which i kind of despise <laughs> i'm not going to make any sort of bones about that or lie about it folks you know yeah i'm not a big fan of ticket games i never have been um uh let's see and you know it's it was fun but I mean, I'm going to be brutally honest about this. Yeah, I mean, I understand the reasonings why they do what they do, but it doesn't mean that I have to be happy about it, and I'm not. So, okay, let's break it down. Um, okay, location. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pull up a instance of uh, WordPad so I can go along with this, so at least I can do this while we're, while we're talking. Uh, location. Um, it's in the middle of downtown Ann Arbor. Um, and 
it's not bad as far as where it is. It's fairly easy to get to. Uh, there is some parking on the street that you can do, but right around the corner is a parking garage. And unless University of Michigan football is playing that day, you can go in there for like, what is it, like $1.20 an hour, park your car, and you can just basically walk out of there and walk into the back of the building where Pinball Pete's is and use the elevator to get down in there. It's pretty easy to get to. So I'm going to give the location a 7.5. Uh, let's see, selection. Now, it's kind of gotten, it hasn't gotten as, it hasn't been as good as it once was, the selection of games, but it's got a fairly decent balance. I mean, it's not as good as it once was. There was a time where Pinball Pete's had a fantastic selection of classic video games uh, to go along with some modern games. It's sort of evened out more now, especially since the new uh, Galaga and Space Invaders uh, ticket video games have come out, which I have to admit are kind of fun, but unfortunately the games are designed to get you get you off those machines as quickly as possible. They do have the, the new Star Wars um, arcade games, which is like this pod that has like this surround sound or this surround like this huge uh, curved flat panel in there i don't even want to know how much this game costs but it's two dollars to play and as much as i want to play it and find out what it's about there's a part of me that kind of balks at it um they've got a lot of they've got several games directly from japan uh they've got uh Tons of ticket games, which is what the kids are into because, you know, they want to win. <laughs> uh, they do have a decent selection of classic games. Um, going from, oh, let's see, uh, Street Fighter 2 to Ms. Pac-Man to Tron to Daytona USA and... They have, like, Wave Runner 2, I think it was. They've got uh, a couple of Raiden uh, sh uh, shoot-em-ups. You know, they've got uh, several other fighting games like Soul Calibur 2 and, like, uh, Capcom vs. SNK, things like that. So, if I'm going to be honest, I'll give the selection, you know, because I know where my bread is buttered and I can be biased in that way. I'm going to be fair. I'll give them a 7.5 for selection um also ambiance as far as ambiance goes uh the staff they're okay i mean my whole thing is there should be one person from the staff walking the floor at all times and another guy behind the counter at the register you know to give that give out uh change for bills or redeem tickets for prizes things like that Last couple of times, it's been some, you know, a couple of people just sitting there having their own conversation. You actually have to get their attention in order them to, for them to uh, pay attention to you. And, yeah, I mean, it, that just kind of rubs me the wrong way. That's why it kind of takes some points off of ambiance. So, yeah, ambiance 6.5. Functionality. Now then, 
This is tied in with value, but I'm going to try to separate them a little bit. Um, one of the things that Pinball Pete's has done recently, and I don't really agree with it that much, is that a lot of their games, they've moved over to 50 cents. And some of the games I understand, like Daytona USA, you know, I get that. That's those have all, that's always been 50 cents. Sometimes more. Sometimes 75. Um, but I shouldn't have to play, pay 50 cents to play uh, Street Fighter 2. I shouldn't. Um, the pinball machines, they're all at least 50 cents. I think the classic ones, the older ones are 50 cents. I think the, the new ones, like the new uh, Deadpool one that just came out, like, oh, I want to say less than a month ago, uh, the Deadpool machine, they're all a dollar. I get that. It's one of the reasons why I don't want it. I don't really get into pinball much. I'd have to go up to the arcade and just devote a lot of time to playing pinball if I wanted to get good at it, but no. <laughs> Once I get to the arcade, you know, I make a beeline straight for what I know. So yeah. Um, but yeah, because of that, that I understand that they're in downtown Ann Arbor and getting a getting a storefront in downtown Ann Arbor and paying the rent on that place has got to be horribly expensive. I mean, I've heard different stories. It's one of the reasons why going shopping down there is such a so expensive because they've got to just be able to cover their overhead. I get it. But if I'm going to pay 50 cents to play, let's say, you know, let's say Street Fighter 2 uh, Champion Edition, which I really shouldn't, in my opinion, that game is, what, 27 years old now? I shouldn't pay that much for it. But if I'm going to, that game better work perfectly. And, you know, even with the ones that still only cost a quarter, like the Williams machines on the ground level, um, like Tron and things like that, those games should be up and running and working perfectly. And sometimes they're not. And it's one of the reasons why I don't go there to spend money as often as I could. You know, I've gone there when it's either the weather's been too too bad or I'm low on gas or anything like that, or my car's in the shop. I'll go there and, you know, go play, uh, go play, you know, play a couple games and, you know, then go back and get my car. But my whole thing is, is that if I'm going to pay 50 cents for a game that by all rights should cost 25 cents, that game better work. And sometimes they don't. So I'm going to give them a five and a half for functionality because between that and so just a lot of their games being down and they should be fixed on the regular i mean i mean i understand i understand the costs involved in all that but yeah they, there should be a stronger effort made value which is tied with functionality like i've said um i understand that the rent on that place must be ridiculously high. I want to say at least, I'd say probably like two, three grand a month just in just in rent. Never mind uh, electric bills and other things and paying your employees. I get it. But there's a part of me, and this goes back to being an arcade game player from the late 70s 
where I shouldn't have to pay 50 cents for games that only only should run 25. I balk at that. I mean, I understood it back in the day when a new game came out, like Star Wars in 1983, where it was 50 cents to play. Like Dragon's Lair in 82, where it's 50 cents to play. Um... It, but these are all older old games and i understand that they need to have be able to make enough money to you know cover their overhead and pay their employees and keep the lights on i get it but like i said it's still i still balk at it so i don't go there as much as i possibly could and you know, on top of that, if a game, if I'm going to drop 50 cents on a game and it's not working right, or it's a game that sh- that I shouldn't have to pay 50 cents for just on general principle, even though I am understanding of circumstances, yeah, I'm not going to go to that place as, as much. So, I mean, I mean, as far as value goes, I mean, most of the games in there are 50 cents almost all of the new stuff and the, you know, like the Galaga ticket game and the Space Invaders ticket game and the other games they have in there, all that stuff's a dollar. And, yeah, there's a part of me that really, really has an issue with that. Not to mention the pinball machines. The older pinball machines should be no more than 50 cents. And, you know, the new stuff, I get it. You know, the new pin, the, the new, uh, Deadpool uh, machine, the relatively new Iron Maiden pinball machine. I get it. Those things cost a lot of money. Like, I want to say like four or five grand at the very least, just for the basic machines. Never mind the LEs or the other or the other ones. So I get it, but it still bothers me a lot, you know. So if I'm going to be fair and understanding, I'll give their value a straight up five. Okay, so if we take all of those and add them together, as I bring up my calculator app, 7.5 plus 7.5 plus 6.5 plus 5.5 plus 5 divide by 5 we end up with a total score value a total review score of 6.4 which is i want to say it's fair i want to say it's fair but you know i may be biased who knows who knows as a matter of fact i'm going to check my math cuz just in case plus 5 is 32 Divide by five. Yes, that's correct. 6.4. Okay, I have it right. Okay, so, I mean, that's my review of Pinball Pete's. Um, Like I said, this one is going to be infrequent. I'm going to try and make a concerted effort over the next month or so to go to other arcades. Uh, There are like three places in Detroit I want to look at and check them out. Um, I will do a review of the arcade in Brighton. You know, I kind of don't want to do one of the past arcades, but I think I might have to. So if I have to, 
then I have to, <laughs> and I will, and I will try to be fair, and I will try not to look at it through rose-colored glasses, but no promises. I can only do the best I can. So that's it for Arcade Review. And if you've got any questions, comments, uh, agree, disagree, anything that you feel that you want to uh, speak on as far as the show goes, you can get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian.com, all one word, and also the phone number for voicemails, 734-743-2433. And that will bring to a close episode three of Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. So until next time, this is Brian. Good gaming. See you, see you then. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. <laughs>